Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Leading off this morning, let us be uh, in in prayer today for the hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of Americans affected by Hurricane Laura. I know that for those of you living um, far inland, this seems it, it seems uh, hard to imagine that a uh, 150 mile per hour spinning wind with almost constant lightning uh, and and rain and a storm surge. That could reach 40 miles inland. Storm surge is is ocean water, uh, and so to imagine that that's going to reach 40 miles inland, um, I remember uh, attending to the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and I remember uh, the saltwater intrusion so far inland that it was uh, genuinely hard to imagine. That's that's the kind of storm that Laura is, uh, and so uh, she came. Uh, on land, roared onto land um, at almost a Cat 5 status. She has now uh, been downgraded to a Cat 3, but she's still a powerful, powerful storm. Uh, many, many of our neighbors uh, to uh, to the south are in, in her path. And if you look at the storm track, um, this is a storm that's going to be with us for a number of days and going to pass through... Um, the center of the country and then up into the eastern seaboard. So this, <laughs> this is going to be, she's going to cut quite a swath. And uh, the saltwater intrusion and storm surge may only affect those uh, in Gulf Coast states. But those of us who live in uh, the, uh, the, now I know that those of you who, who live in Minneapolis, you think you live in the middle of the country, but actually those of us in, you know, like down here in Tennessee, we, we think we're kind of in the middle of the country. So anyway, uh, be praying for your neighbors today. I'll be anticipating that people are going to need a lot of help. Um, and in particular, I want us to be lifting up uh, people who like are responsible for nursing home residents. It's, it is really hard to relocate um, fragile people. And so let's be praying for all of those frontline workers who have been already working so diligently to care for uh, the sick and the frail and for the challenges they now face because their families have also evacuated and probably to a different location that they have evacuated with the residents of uh, of those um, residential health communities. Let's also lift up uh, the situation in uh, not only Kenosha, Wisconsin, but other cities across the nation uh, Minneapolis, again, uh, leads the national headlines in terms of, of looting, where looters descended on the Nicolette Mall on Wednesday night after false rumors spread that an officer had shot a homicide suspect who actually um, shot himself. I describe this as living in a tinderbox where people don't actually wait for information to um, to to emerge. They just, they're just so ready to respond in ways that are um, hostile and negative. And so 
Let's just be mindful of that today. Let's be mindful that um, people are very much on edge. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Justice Department on Wednesday announced a civil rights investigation into the police shooting um, of um, of Jacob Blake there, uh, Blake Jacob, and um, the officer who shot him has been identified. You'll also remember that there were um, shootings during the protests and the 17-year-old from Illinois, Kyle Rittenhouse, has now been arrested and charged with the murder of two people who he shot during the protest following um, Blake's death. And so uh, last night, protests in Kenosha remained peaceful, for which we are thankful. Um, but the, the, the complicated nature of this conversation, it's not just black and white. It's not just happening in isolated places. Um, and it's not just happening among uh, people who are, let's say, of an age. We're talking here about teenagers. And so we're going to have to have a conversation about guns. And so I'm going to have that conversation up next with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. We're going to talk all things Second Amendment. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Ben Johnson, also known as the Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so you and I ordinarily till the soil of the First Amendment, but today I'm going to ask you to help me till the soil of the Second Amendment, um, and that would be the right in the United States of America, uh, the right to bear arms. Um, can we talk about that? Sounds like we need to all over the country. You know, the uh, the Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And because of that, the Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the lives of others. So preserving our life, a life that's made in the image of God, is not distinct from worshiping God. But both those rights are under attack in the United States. Uh, we've seen and discussed the uh, religious liberty aspect most weeks, talking about the necessity to save lives whether it's a child in the womb or whether it's yourself or your neighbor, uh, that's the reason that the Second Amendment exists in large part. It's the ability to defend yourself, to defend those who are close and dear to you, particularly if you are the head of a household, a uh, single mother or a, a father who, who has uh, children, then it is your duty to, to defend those who are close to you. And yet uh, the Second Amendment is very much constricted all over the country. Uh, and we saw it particularly in the case of riots where uh, hundreds upon hundreds of people broke down a gate, went onto the private property on a private street, uh, allegedly threatened to murder and or assault uh, Mark and Patricia McCloskey. And when they pulled out guns to try and dissuade people from burning their house down, they were the ones charged with a felony. So, uh, of course, they were at the at the Republican National Convention. Mark, in his remarks, said that uh, President Trump will defend the God-given right of every American to protect their homes and families. So it was good to at least see that he understands that uh, this is a God-given right. It's a responsibility to defend yourselves and your property. So uh, we're, we're currently amongst a whole host of people who know that we're in the largest surge of gun ownership in American history. 
There are 5 million new first-time gun owners, 12 million guns sold thus far this year, uh, according to several statistics. 12 million, that's 70% more than uh, this time last year. It's almost double. By the end of the year, I'm certain it will be double. And the fact that you see these riots and looting and destruction of private property and the police are standing down or sometimes ordered to kneel uh, along with the protesters is the reason that people realize they mean they very well may need to defend themselves. All right. You and I are going to get uh, well, you may not, but I will get a lot of pushback from uh, from the idea that owning a gun is a God given right. We're not saying that owning a gun is a God given right. We're saying that. Um, you do have a right to protect the life that God has given you, and you do have a responsibility to protect um, the lives of others. Um, am I am I interpreting that correctly? That's exactly right. It's, it's a responsibility for us to defend the life God has given us, to be good stewards of the lives God has given us. And, you know, Jesus even commanded his followers to, to buy swords. So I think that there's no question when it comes to defending our own life. Uh, that is something that we have— the ability to do. And, uh, of course, many Christians have laid down their lives rather than uh, than harm others, but that's not a requirement of everyone. We have the right and the ability to defend ourselves under uh, Christian law. So when we think about, um, we think about the Second Amendment, we have to um, look back to the First Amendment because, well, if, well, actually, I'm looking to the Declaration of Independence here. If we're, if we're actually endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the defense of life is what we're then talking about here, right? The liberty to not only um, labor, but flourish in my laboring and, and buy things like private property, um, and then to, to pursue happiness as, uh, maybe strangely defined sometimes, but let's define it as, as human flourishing. Um, so all of those are then bound up in my uh, my ability to secure to secure those assets. I mean, I think that's the conversation that we're having. I recognize that um, in the culture we're also having a larger conversation about private property ownership, and I think that's that's going to be a part of this conversation as well. There's no question that there are people asking whether or not people like the McCloskeys ought to own such a home, ought to have such uh, such things. Uh, there certainly is. And you've, you've laid out exactly the proper perspective. The first and primary right is the right to life. Without that, no other right uh, matters. Once you have that right, then uh, if you use your labor in order to uh, buy certain things, then the right to own the fruits of your labor is very much a right that flows from that. Our founding fathers understood that. And the first and primordial uh, importance of government, the very first function of government, is to preserve life. And that's from aggressors from outside, that's from criminals from within, and then to defend the property of individuals who have used their life in order to acquire certain things. The fact that that's no longer at the heart of uh, our understanding of government Right now, whole generations think that if someone owns something, the first function of government should be to redistribute that to uh, more popular property holders. Uh, So if Bill Gates owns something or Warren Buffett or others own something that I believe he should not have, uh, or as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, why should a billionaire be able to have a heliport? Uh, we should we should redistribute that because the government knows how best to use all of uh, the fruits of your labor. Well, if you're laboring for other people, 
then uh, you're being compelled to label labor for other people. You're no longer uh, a free and independent subject. At that point, you become a subject of the government. And uh, there's a very small step from that to full out slavery. All right. Just to be clear, I'm already laboring for the government for um, a fair number of months. Am I not? I mean, I'm just saying four and a half to five months a year. You are correct. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So uh, Ben Johnson and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're going to move into uh, a conversation about young people and guns. Five million Americans have become first-time gun owners in 2020. There's a Missouri bill that would allow guns to be given to minors without parental consent. Um, And I think that as a part of this conversation, we're going to uh, you know, we're at least going to have to all as a nation uh, reflect on the fact that it's a 17 year old with uh, a, uh, with an assault rifle um, who took the lives of protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So uh, it's it's a complicated day. Um, but you and I as Christians are responsible to think through it in order that we can bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news. So we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Um, ben, let's wrap up this conversation about, about guns and guns in America. Um, there are uh, sort of competing attempts to both expand and constrict um, gun access and gun ownership and gun use in this country. That's right. As you mentioned, Missouri lawmakers want to make it legal to give guns to a minor without parental consent. Uh, it seems the idea is that uh, a ne- an uncle would not be prosecuted for taking his nephew out hunting without calling the parents first or something like that. But, uh, of course, in East St. Louis, it's not necessarily hunting that is the primary use of guns. Uh, suicide is also a, a big issue, and we've heard about Kyle Rittenhouse. So whether it should be legal or not, uh, obviously a great deal of wisdom and discernment should have to be used Uh, If a parent who is responsible for the child says it's a bad idea, that in and of itself should be the determining factor, not uh, what the law has to say. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, they cited three Black Lives Matter protesters for carrying guns openly in Civic Plaza. Now, the problem is open carry is legal in New Mexico, except in places like courthouses or schools. So the park, uh, which is a public place, is being rezoned by the uh, by the uh, administration as though Civic Plaza were a school. They're charging the protesters with felonies. So uh, this is a case where someone is taking a law that's on the books and simply reinterpreting it, reimagining it, and applying it as though a new law has been written. Uh, we've seen this at the federal level. It's wrong whenever it is done. The law has to be applied as it is written, according to its original intent. Otherwise, You don't have uh, the rule of law. You have the rule of man, and anyone can be prosecuted for anything. Well, and every space is a school. I mean, if if I'm homeschooling, then my home is a school. And if I'm homeschooling and we're out on a a field trip, then wherever I'm schooling is school. I mean, the extension of, of the idea that a park, a city park, is suddenly a school um, well, I mean, I, that's <clears throat> it's creative. It's creative. OK, let's talk about political division. Um, Kellyanne Conway gave her what I anticipate to be final speech at the RNC uh, convention last night. Give us a little um, give us a little insight into into the political division conversation um, that's that surrounds not only her, but the conversations um, that in which she's engaged. <laughs> 
Well, Kellyanne Conway, of course, a senior advisor to the president, one of his longest serving aides. Her husband, George Conway, is a high-powered Republican attorney who is very much a critic of the president. Uh, they have clashed very publicly on Twitter. They have a 15-year-old daughter, one of their four children, Claudia, who uh, has criticized both of them on Twitter uh, to the point that their entire family is breaking apart. Claudia said that uh, her daughter, her, her mother taking a job with the Trump administration ruined her life. She was devastated that her mother is speaking at the Republican National Convention, and she's seeking emancipation, legal emancipation from her parents. So what you're seeing is a family that's broken apart largely by politics, by the fact that the daughter refers to herself as a radical agnostic uh, liberal leftist. So and those are her words. So you're seeing in that a microcosm and a very public playing out of the divisions that are happening all over the country in families where people are canceling family events, not going to Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, because they don't want to talk politics with people who disagree with them. And we've become a more intolerant society as more things become politicized. And it's not simply, uh, you know, in one place or another. Uh, this has been going on for years. In 2014, there was a study done that found that partisans of politics, and this is a quote, discriminate against opposing partisans, and they do so to a degree that exceeds discrimination based on race. That is to say, political hatred is now a more potent force than racism in our society. I don't think that's well understood, but that's the reality that we're living in. 80% of people in one study said that if they had to hire two people and they knew the political persuasion of people, they would hire a less qualified candidate who belongs to their own political party. Uh, there was a recent study done by the Cato Institute. Half of strong liberals and about a third of strong conservatives said that they would be in, in, in favor of firing someone who donated to the opposite candidate. So if, if, if uh, someone made a, a contribution to President Trump, the liberal would fire them. Someone made a contribution to Vice President Biden. The conservative would fire them. This is affecting our ability to do business. And in fact, the most dangerous study in 2018, a third of college students agreed with a statement in a survey that, and this is a quote, physical violence can be justified to prevent a person from using hate speech. We've talked on this program about the expansion of hate speech, the fact that Dear, kindly Christian individuals like Dr. D. James Kennedy were accused of hate speech during their lifetime. So what we're seeing is the breaking apart of society as everything becomes politicized and faith recedes. People make politics their God. It's, it's replaced religion as though this is truly their faith. And it, you've seen their heresy hunting. Uh, there's the justification, the shunning. Uh, just as in the Amish tradition, that people are shunning family members, and there's even the ability for religious wars to break out. False gods also send their people on wars, and they are no more congenial than the wars that have been fought by religions through the years. Hmm. Well, aren't you a bright and shiny presence on the radio this morning? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hey, let's um, let's uh, let's end with a bright spot. Um, Maximo Alvarez. Uh, people may have missed uh, much of the RNC convention. Why is the Maximo Alvarez speech one that they should go track down uh, somewhere on YouTube or elsewhere in order to listen to it? It'll be the best six minutes that you spend today. Trust me. Maximo Alvarez came to this country from Cuba. His father left totalitarian Spain to go to Cuba. And then when Fidel Castro came to power, he had to leave Cuba again. And Maximo Alvarez just reminds us 
He said his father told him when they came to this country, keep this country. You have a republic, you must keep it because if you lose America, there's nowhere else to go. America is still a beacon for people who love freedom. And it's our duty as citizens, as, as individuals in the United States, to preserve the liberty that has been given to us, not just for ourselves, but for people all over the world who look to this world as a beacon. And by the way, if you've got five more minutes, look at Chen Guangcheng's speech from last night. Chen Guangcheng, the blind uh, a, a human rights advocate who exposed China's one-child policy. He was arrested. He eventually broke out and fled. He's now an American citizen. These two tell us the importance of the United States of America and the constitutional order that we've been given, liberty and justice for all, to all people around the world. We must preserve it here for those who wish to seek it elsewhere. All right. And for those of you who at me when I don't spell things for you, uh, Maximo is spelled exactly like it sounds, and so is Alvarez. Uh, and then um, Chen, C-H-E-N, Guangchen, G-U-A-N-G-C-H-E-N-G. I'll tweet it all out so you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Carmen LeBurge. You, is that where I am? Yeah. Um, and or you can follow um, you can follow Ben. He, he's even easier to find the rights writer on Twitter. Hey, man, thanks so much. Thank you. God bless. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. What's the status and what's the future of Christian marriage? Peter Kapsner and I actually talked about this forthcoming book by Mark Regnerus, and um, uh, I thought it'd be fun to have him on. He's a sociologist from the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of The Future of Christian Marriage. If you actually want to understand what is going on um, in the hearts and minds of those who are not getting married today and why they're not getting married or how they view marriage particularly those who have been uh, raised within the church and are yet uh, eschewing it, eschewing it. Um, That conversation's up next. Mark Rignaris up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, I like the idea of a beautiful chain of love uh, and the way that you and I link our efforts together to uh, both produce and then broadcast this radio ministry. So thank you to each and every one of you who participate in this listener-supported ministry at Faith Radio. Um, if you're, if, Maybe you've come um, to the show uh, and to the broadcast uh, lately. Maybe you have joined us via the podcast or you've joined us at MyFaithRadio.com via the streaming, or you're in one of our new listening markets across the country First of all, welcome to the Faith Radio family. Um, And then let me just tell you, this is listener-supported radio. And so uh, we periodically do something we call a share campaign. We've got one of those coming up in a couple of weeks. So as we are preparing ourselves for a week of inviting you into the support of this ministry, I'd encourage you to begin praying about how God might be leading you to share the resources He has put within your reach that we might extend this gospel ministry to more and more people. Shares coming up in just a couple of weeks, and we look forward to sharing with you what God is doing in and through the ministry, and we look forward with you to you responding by sharing of the resources that God has placed within your reach during this particular season. All right, up next, Mark uh, Rignaris. We are going to talk about the future of Christian marriage. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Nobody's perfect. 
Nobody makes it through life without hurting others and getting hurt in the process. Relationships are messy. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you have a teen in your family, you know what it feels like to be hurt, disrespected, or ignored. But you have a choice in the middle of all of this. You can love your kids even when you feel like they don't deserve it. Relationships are messy. And I've learned over the years that if I walk away from someone every time they offend me, I allow their actions to determine the future of our relationship. That's not what any parent wants. This time around, choose to show love, even when the kids don't deserve it. Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Harris serves as a professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a senior fellow at the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Uh, he is a husband. He is a dad. Uh, and he is an author. And he's here to talk with us today about his brand new book, The Future of Christian Marriage. Mark, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Good to be here. So um, you're a sociologist. We're going to have a conversation with you about the observations um, that your research reveals, um, the conversations that you have had in the course of your research um, on the topic of marriage. And so let me just tell my audience right off, we're not we're not making comments about the theology or morality of the trends that Mark is observing. So um, although you're welcome to text me at 877-933-2484, um, just, just recognize this is a conversation with a professor of sociology. Is how's Mark? How's that for setting up the conversation? That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's do this. Um, because the, not only the, um, title of the book, but really throughout the book and certainly, um, where the book lands is a conversation about Christian marriage. And so let's just start by defining that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I define it pretty straightforward and simply. We're talking about Christians who uh, want to get married or who already recently are married. Um, It's not a sense, I'm not defining like what is the characteristics of Christian marriage. I ask them that, and they often displayed that and articulated that, but they're different enough, and different Christians around the world have a little bit distinctive vision or for what marriage is for themselves and for their, their, uh, in their own marriage. So I don't define it. I let them define it. And then basically I started the book thinking, Oh, I want to understand Christian marriage as a thing. And in reality, it's quite a, quite different by different people. But what I learned is like the core of marriage is fairly consistent uh, the key supports for marriage are fairly consistent, and that Christians just want that more than unbelievers. I think part of the challenge um, that you know that you face, and that certainly those of us who are um, you know seeking to continue to have a Christocentric conversation in a secularizing, ever more secularizing culture, um, even when we say Christians who want to be married or Christians who are married, 
um, there will be competing understandings of who and who is not a Christian. So right. talk a little For bit sure. about how you approached the research, uh-huh. um, because this yeah. is this book is mostly a book of stories about the people with whom uh, or who answered, um, you know, who answered the survey questionnaire. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so this is takes place in seven different countries, the United States, Mexico, Spain, Poland, Russia, Lebanon and Nigeria. And why did I do that? Well, the last book I wrote was called Cheap Sex. It's about sort of what's happened uh, in America about relationships. And I was like, well, first, I want to focus on Christians next time. And I also want to know, go abroad and see, like, are, are things better elsewhere? And it turns out there are aspects of things that are better elsewhere. But uh, we've exported a lot of our, our sort of worst uh, relationship characteristics, unfortunately. So when I talk about Christians, though, I define it as sort of like people who are attending church at least weekly on average and are active in their congregations. But I didn't limit it to one group. Okay? Uh, there are diversity of Christians out there. So we talked to Orthodox in Russia. We talked to Catholics in a variety of these countries, Pentecostals, Evangelicals. Um, yeah, we got a, a quite a, a diversity of perspective here. They share a lot in common, and they have some obvious key distinctions, especially if you were to go to their worship services. Some of them you'd barely recognize. <laughs> All right, I want to um, I want to ask you to comment on um, and maybe even amplify an ob- observation that you make very early sure. in the book. Um, I would describe that this as the climate in which you're you are having this conversation. You say to talk seriously <laughs> about marriage today in a scholarly sphere is to speak a foreign language. You tempt yeah. annoyance, confusion, yeah. or both. As a result, there's a tug of war going on over what is known with confidence about marriage, what can be said about it, and who is authorized to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, this is a this is an excellent observation that you make. And then as as I scroll down through this um, through this observation, um, you then acknowledge, you know, marriage is actually uh, substantially a good thing. It is a it is oh, a yeah. good. So talk with us about the climate in which you as a scholar are having this conversation. Yeah. Uh, so I started writing about marriage, I think, back in 2008 or 2009. Um, and I started my kind of public foray with an, an article in the Wall, I'm sorry, the, Wall, the Washington Post about sort of, uh, I was lamenting the sense that kids can't go to college and, and be seriously looking for a, for a spouse. This was at the I, I remember of this Lake being Beach. very popular, making you very popular. That's what I, that's how I remember this. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so then I wrote about it in Christianity Today, the, I think it was 2010. Um, just kind of to reignite the idea of, you know, it's not a, a crazy idea to marry when you're in your early 20s or something like that. And uh, I, my career took a little different turn at, at starting then and uh, has never really gone back to its original pathway, one that was sort of conventional and uh, predictable and popular, at least among my peers. So that's gone because I started writing on things that uh, mattered to me, that mattered to the church, especially around marriage, sexuality, and relationships. Um, and it's, it's really a, a toxic environment to try to, to do this in. 
I have managed, thankfully, to continue to do that and, and publish articles and publish books with decent presses. Uh, but it's certainly not easy, and you take your licks along the way. Um, so I, I did note that you know it's it, marriage is like the M word, right? Like it's like it's a bad word that you can't speak in in polite company. Um, it's unfortunate, but uh, if I have this platform still, if I can still talk, I I feel responsible to do so. So that's the context in which I I've, I've written this book. I wrote a study on. Uh, uh, Child, adult child outcomes, people who are in, who had same sex uh, parents. Um, it's all just uh, you know third rail stuff. It's uh, it's touching the live wire. I'm talking with Professor Mark Rignaris from the University of Texas at Austin. We are talking today about his brand new book, The Future of Christian Marriage. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask him if it's possible that we're actually more shaped and formed by capitalism than we are by Christ when it comes to marriage. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Professor Mark Rignaris, uh, we are talking about his brand new book, The Future of Christian Marriage. Um, Mark, let me uh, let me ask this. You, you make... Um, you make a, a list of observations about what I'll describe as the, what's your words, the intrusion of a market mentality into our mm-hmm. homes, marriages, and bedrooms. And so let me just ask, is it possible that we are more shaped and formed by capitalism than we are by Christ when it comes to marriage today? Right. Uh, I, I did that, and I think that's probably the case. Uh, so in trying to figure out what's the sort of the nature of this profound uncertainty that people are experiencing and articulating. Uh, I, I wondered, like, well, what is going on? People keep saying, well, I don't have enough money to marry. I don't, uh, my situation is insecure, etc." And then I look around at the history of marriage in the world and think people have been marrying for millennia, right? And uh, in spite of the poverty, they have felt poverty that is, is much beyond what we experience in the United States, even among the most poor. So I thought, what's going on here? And and I sort of I took a deep dive into this the idea that it's the it's not capitalism or the free market per se that's the problem. Those things have been really good, but the logic and the and and the turn of it towards our homes, I think, has been a, a bridge too far. Basically, um, I talk about the, how how the reach of the free market has gone right into our homes into our bedrooms. And I think I, I said, you know, logically, given a free market mentality, like if you're unhappy with your marriage, trade it in, get an upgrade, right? And I think that mentality has has stuck here. And we're starting to send it to, to places beyond the West. And then I listed a, a variety of things that are fairly normal, uh, characteristics that sort of each of them sort of show Wow, we're really more interested in money and competition than we are in building a household. I talk about like how the notion of a Sabbath, right, which was a Sabbath rest from work, has, is becoming this distant memory. Like um, corporations no longer do it, except for people like Chick Fil A, because oh, they cut into corporate profits. We have fewer children than we used to because we want to invest more in those few. 
Uh, we work way too many hours thinking we're doing this for our family. We outsource care of our family. We outsource care of our parents to strangers. I mean, who does this uh, with kind of a clear conscience? And I've participated in each one of those things. And it's just, it, it kind of wrecks me to think how far I've let this mentality penetrate me. And I think, you know, I didn't get that from my faith. I didn't get that from, from the word of God. I got that from the world around me. And I think it has harmed families over the long run and taught us to sort of understand our marriages and our families as sort of accoutrements rather than the kind of what people, some of the people in our, our uh, study called the domestic church, right? Mm. This is sort of the, our, the first church in which we are experienced as children. And I think it's harmed us. I've got a friend, her, her name is Marnie. I remember um, back in seminary, she wrote a paper um, talking about marriage and the family being the crucible um, where faith is formed. And I think that when you talk about, you know, the marriage and family as the domestic church, that's what you're talking about. It's a little cathedral yeah. and we either build it, it is. on a firm foundation and make it beautiful or um, or it ends up being very, very destructive um, or can be, right. which right. which, you, you which you deal with. Care. You talk about, yeah, you talk about all those anxiety producing trends. Um, I think that's important yeah. in the book as well. Talk about outsourcing the care. Go ahead. Yeah, if you outsource the, sort of the, the spiritual care of, of your children to other people, and you've already signaled like, ah, I need to focus on more important things than that, So, which is sort of uh, backwards. All right. I, um, I am most excited. I mean, the, the entire book is great. I'm most excited about Chapter 6. Um, <laughs> chapter 7 is excellent, and it's, uh, it's sort of the landing sure. pad um, – uh, but chapter six, uh, you you go a little bit off script as a professor of sociology, um, a and you give a you give a little um, advice. There's a little advisory discussion here, is the way you frame it. You say you want to light a candle rather than curse the darkness, and you discuss these eight general themes um, that have emerged from your interviews as well as your own observations. Um, talk, mm-hmm. Just just lay them out. What are the uh, what are the right. eight or what are the eight things that we could actually do? to uh, redeem marriage. Right. I probably won't get through all eight, but I'll try to give you just a snippet of as many as I can cover. First, I talked about uh, how we need to tell exemplary stories, right? You can always think about how sitcoms kind of denigrate marriage and fatherhood especially. But regardless of what the, the media is doing, we need to tell the good stories about marriage. We look around sometimes at our grandparents or our own parents or somebody else we know and we they have an excellent marriage, a, a vibrant family. I need to know more about how they did that, right? Even in my own marriage, I keep thinking like, boy, I'd like to get to know that couple who's like age 60. Like they seem happy and have been happy. And like, um, we need to sharpen our skills. I need to hear from other people. Kids need to hear from other people. Uh, excellent stories about marriage. We also need to recover kind of a um, what I call marriage-friendly subcultures, uh, that's not simple, but sort of, I, I think, like in a, in a small way, in a, in a, at a local level, um, Rod Dreher talks about this and about in the Benedict option. I don't think we have to choose, like, are we doing this sort of surround the uh, circle the wagons mentality or not? But we need to sort of build 
subcultures around us within churches where marriage is sort of particularly esteemed. It's not to shut people out who are not married. That's not the goal here, but it's to, to sort of say, we have to take special care of this notion and make your home for your own children, whether they're adult children now, or you still have young children, a haven, and I call it in a heartless world to, to riff off of Christopher Lash's uh, famous book, it has to be sort of a safe haven from these mentalities that I talked about a little bit earlier, where the same logic, competition, uh, striving doesn't matter, doesn't apply. The home has to be secure from that. Preparing people for marriage like we've never have before, because it used to be like, well, everybody's going to get married or most people and they'll figure it out. Well, people just don't figure it out like they used to. We have to be sort of rigorously prepared and help others navigate challenging marriages. There's such a competitive mentality out there that you think, if I don't have a great marriage, I deserve something better. Um, no, you really don't, right? You have to work with what you're with, okay? And I, so I wrote a piece in First Things several years ago called The Good Enough Marriage. A lot of us have it, and we need to nurture that and nurture those and even good enough marriages can, over time, um, become better, become better than average. Parents need to be mindful also of the kind of advice they give to children. Uh, a lot of parents are sort of steering children away from marriage, especially if you've been through a divorce yourself. Your primary advice is um, wait, right? Be really, really, really super sure. Make sure you never have to need this person. All of it is sort of like, what about the interdependence that the union actually is? Where did that go? So those are, I'd say those so, are six or seven of the eight pieces of advice. I know, I, I know. You've actually done a great job getting through them. I was, <laughs> I was super impressed by that. So as a, um, as a person who got married for the first time in her early 40s, um, obviously I'm a Christian. I married a Christian. Mm -hmm. yep. um, he is uh, divorced, and so there are lots of kids involved in this conversation. Right. And right. when Jim not and I, simple. no, it's not simple. And when Jim and I got together, like our, um, uh, you know, obviously mutually edifying one another, seeking for the other person's, you know, discipleship. And, and those are high priorities. But the first priority of our marriage was redeeming marriage for the next generation of this family. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I do think that there is a there is a vision that you can have for your marriage that certainly goes beyond yourself. And I, I believe yeah. that's what you are. Um, that is what you are seeking to help us recover in this conversation. Yeah. Mark, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the book. I appreciate the spirit in which you labor. Blessings upon you and your family um, uh, and, and the work that you're doing. Um, hey, be lifting up uh, Mark Regneris in prayer. He's doing, a, he's doing a good thing out there in a hard place. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Pleasure. Absolutely. The book is The Future of Christian Marriage. All right, we've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Uh, we got a lot planned. Your favorite, uh, I mean, you know, he used to be the host. Now he's like my sidekick for this. But Peter Kapsner is going to be back. We're going to talk about some crazy headlines. One of them is a trend in what's called human composting. Yes, I know, high ick factor. But people actually are headed in this direction, and we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about um, how we as Christians can engage in a positive way in the race and reconciliation conversations. I've got an African-American pastor from Norfolk joining me uh, in the next hour. So stay tuned for the next hour of Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.